I don't know if you've listened to my podcast before, but sometimes there's a bit of explicit language, and this is one of those times. It's Wednesday, August 15th. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. The Turkish lira has plunged to depths not seen for about 15 years. It lost about half of its value against the dollar this calendar year, which of course means it's the perfect time for Turkish President Erdogan to offer this assessment, as he did in the New York Times, op-ed, How Turkey Sees the Crisis with the U.S., subhead, Unilateral Actions Against Turkey by the United States Will Undermine American Interests and Force Turkey to Look for Other Friends and Allies. That's right. That's right, Turkey saying, maybe we don't want to be your friends anymore. Now that we've lost half our buying power, maybe we don't want your business. Can you imagine what the U.S. would do if Turkey weren't a friend? Now that Turkey's riding low, and now that the government could collapse, I think it's the perfect time for Erdogan to talk about all the things that we've done wrong to him. Okay, it is obvious, as a nationalistic autocrat, that Erdogan knows how to play the nationalistic autocrat card for the public at home. That's what the New York Times op-ed seems to be doing. I mean, maybe he looks to Putin, who at one point had okay relations with the U.S., but then was able to turn enmity with the U.S. to his advantage at a time of internal economic malaise. But Turkey's economic problems are a lot worse than Russia's were. The New York Times Daily, the podcast, suggested something that I don't know I agree with. They said that autocracies are just bad for business. I don't think so. I think idiocracies are bad for business. Erdogan is a good thug, but a bad banker. Yesterday, the Wall Street Journal produced a chart showing that democracies don't really have the clear lead over autocracies in terms of return on investment. The U.S. is a democracy, trending perhaps towards the less democratic, but we're doing quite well. If openness and democracy were the goal, Asia should envy Europe. But since economic growth is the goal, Europe envies much of Asia. China's an autocracy, but their leaders are smart and China's doing well. In fact, in China, autocratic tendencies probably help economics. There are no unions to placate. There's no short-term thinking to win the next election. There's no interest groups to prize over the national interest. No politician can exercise veto power over necessary infrastructure expenditures. Think about that. Chris Christie couldn't operate in China. Hmm. Saudi Arabia has never been anything other than a really bad dictatorship. Openness seems to have a poor correlation with economic success. The price of oil has a deep correlation with Saudi economic success. Brazil's a democracy and an economic basket case. In general, I like democracy more. I think it's a hedge, uh, not the best hedge, but kind of a hedge against the worst aspects of autocracy. But the world's first and second biggest economies should offer a pretty clear lesson that autocracy could hinder growth or it could help it, but idiocy is always a killer. On the show today, I spiel about the first openly transgender major party candidate for governor and... We will dive into what that means, and we will not be stinting on Vermont politics. But first, Buna Murray was the title screen that you saw during The Real World. That production team created that MTV show essentially inventing reality TV. And now John Murray is producing a very different reality series, the Emmy Award-winning Born This Way. And John Murray is in the studio next. 
This Way is a show that begins its fourth season tonight on A&E, 8, 7 Central and Mountain. It is about adults in their 20s with Down syndrome. It's compelling, touching, humane. It's real, which isn't always true of reality TV. And speaking of the genre, the progenitor of reality TV is the producer of this show. John Murray was the co-creator of The Real World, an exec producer of The Kardashians, and now he produces Born This Way. Hello, John. How are you? Hi, happy to be here. How'd you, why'd you want to do this show? I even think, you, you mentioned Rear World. Going back to Rear World, it was always about putting people on television who hadn't previously been featured. You know, when we put Pedro Zamora on Rear World San Francisco, there had not been a young person with HIV AIDS on television. And I've always been interested in giving voice to marginalized communities, people who have been ignored. And um, I sort of feel like the whole area of disability, and it's sort of like the new civil rights movement. Mm -hmm. It's like these people with various disabilities have been sort of ignored. And uh, with Born This Way, it was an opportunity to introduce viewers to this world of these young people with Down syndrome and their families who have worked so hard to give them the tools to be as independent as possible. I got hopes, dreams, everything that you have, I have. I am very typical 22-year-old girl. I play golf. I love to cook. Also, I like poetry. My dream is to get married. I want a girlfriend. I want a car. I want independence. If you don't want people to treat you different, don't treat me different. I do have a story to tell. Don't be afraid of me. I don't bite. Woo! When people look at you, what do you want them to see? In 2018, is this just about the only cast you're going to get that's not consciously playing the metagame of knowing they're on TV and performing? No, I don't think all people perform. I think, you know, our job as producers are to find those people who can't help but be themselves. Mm -hmm. And I think that, you know, when we're casting a show, we have... We do three, four, five interviews with people. We talk to their friends. We talk to people they don't even know we talk to. We have a 25-page application people have to figure out. We are really, our job is to get to know them and to be convinced that they are who they say they are. We don't want someone who's going to come on and put her on a performance. But I think these days everyone knows that the genre is the genre and that it requires a certain vocabulary and certain way of acting. And there's always the consciousness that you're on this TV show that's of a genre in a way that the first season of Survivor, the first couple seasons of The Real World couldn't have known. And I, I'm not, my question is, are the guys and girls from Born This Way, are they aware of that? No. I mean, I think this is a unique population. I think they don't have as much of a filter. But, you know, but I've seen with, uh, you know, the, the seasons advancing that they have more of a sense of sort of who they are and how people react to them. But there's still, I think, a purity to it that's wonderful. And that actually means as a producer, we have a greater responsibility mm-hmm. because we have to, you know, if they're not quite as good at filtering out some things, we have to filter them out and protect them. Well, let's talk about your responsibility because you don't have a child with Down syndrome. You don't, you don't, do you have any personal connection to this? My only personal connection is uh, in my family's past, going back a couple generations, we had um, someone who had Down syndrome who had been institutionalized. Right. It was right. a very different time. So you don't come to it maybe... I'm sure you do your homework, you try to portray this sensitively, but until it goes out in the world, you don't get the feedback from millions of people, millions of 
uh, families with Down syndrome. So I guess my question is, has there been any impetus? There must be many families who have someone with Down syndrome in their family who love it, but maybe that person, you know, isn't as capable as the people on the show. Has there been any impetus to try to show their stories or get at that in any way? I think that through our own cast members, they've they all have challenges, and I think we've been able to get at that through the challenges that they face. And we haven't had really any pushback from anyone saying, oh, you're not being representative of, of the overall community. Because at least from my experience, our cast are pretty representative. Do you have any indication that you're changing the way the culture as a whole looks at people with Down syndrome? Absolutely. Uh, one of the most interesting things is that uh, about 80% of women who are told they're going to have a child with Down syndrome traditionally is encouraged and ultimately makes the decision to abort the pregnancy. Right. And I think that's changing as a result of a lot of things, including this show, because people are seeing that a child with Down syndrome can actually have a wonderful family life, can be a a great part of their community, can get a job, can live independently. Um, it's not the dark picture it was years ago. And I think these seven young people and, and how their families, how their parents, their siblings have supported them shows just what's possible. Are you surprised where the genre went from 1992, 93, when it started? Uh, Real World went on the air in 92. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's amazing. It's, it's not a genre. It's a genre with tons of sub-genres. That's right. Because there's and, a, the Emmy, there's, the Emmy that you won is there are two different Emmys for the best reality show, and yours is called Unstructured. Well, there's reality. actually three. There's competition, <laughs> there's structured, and there's unstructured. Yeah, and yeah. it's very different. Um, you know, when 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 networks are looking at who's going to run a show, you look at a very different person who's going to run a a structured show or a competition show versus someone who's going to do an unstructured show. Right. Are there any regrets to you, you? Don't have to answer for the whole genre, but do you have any regrets about what the genre became? I don't, um, because I really feel television is a true democracy. If people don't like it, they'll turn it off and it'll go off the air. Mm -hmm. And I think that overall, reality actually has had a positive impact. In terms of diversity, I think reality has led. Uh, you know, look at the first season of Survivor, Richard Hatch, gay Machiavellian guy. No one would have scripted that character. No. No one would have had the guts to script that character, but it could happen on a reality show. There is a lot of um, there's a lot of artifice to many reality shows. Not so born this way. It seems to me, unless you're so good at it, I can't figure it out. No, but, I think that's the the yeah. No, I mean that's why I'm so proud of. I, you know, people always uh, used to ask me what's the show you're proudest of, and for many years it was Real World, and yeah. particularly the San Francisco season with Pedro. And now I sort of have to like toss it up with Born This Way because um, 25 years after premiering Real World, you know, we we came up with Born This Way and and actually helped me rediscover my my love of reality TV. Did you have to question yourself or tweak your attitude towards showing how funny these guys could be? Because at a certain point, you don't want to laugh at people with disabilities. But on the other hand, A, they're being funny. But sometimes they're being funny not when they're intending to be funny, but then the other people are laughing along. So was there any calibration with uh, how to portray the humor, the inherent humorness, humorousness on the show? The very first episode, we knew we had to give permission to people to laugh. Mm -hmm. And so we chose a scene, the opening, the first scene, of the first episode, cold open. Stephen and Sean are in a bar. They're having a beer. Immediately said, oh, 
people with Down syndrome can drink. Right, right. They're actually adults. They're not kids, as we want to say. And um, they see a woman down, you know, one seat over in the bar, and she's with a guy, and they're discussing whether she might be available. And then they introduce themselves and sort of start to talk, and they realize that she introduces her boyfriend next year, and they both look at each other and go, <laughs> awkward. <laughs> and it, it, it completely telegraphed to the audience, okay, you can laugh. These people, you, you know, they're, they're sharing their lives. They're comfortable with you feeling their awkwardness sometimes. I got to say that uh, I got to do my plug because this season, you know, it, it's sort of amazing in that uh, this is the season that we've been building up to uh, with Christina and her boyfriend, Angel, who are getting married. They're getting married. And, I saw um, some wedding dress shopping. This is what I like. Oh, I know it. Now nice. Oh, my God. I got pictures of her smiling. <laughs> Even the wedding dress shopping was amazing because Christina was going for like the low cut number mm-hmm. and her mother was like, how do I get my daughter to understand that she should choose something a little less revealing because we're going to have pictures that are going to last her for the next rest of her life. And it was just fascinating and it was so identifiable. Any mother and, and daughter who were, you know, those kind of things because she wanted her daughter to make her own choice. You know, but she wanted her to make a wise choice, yeah, and so it was. That's and, relatable to a lot of moms and a lot exactly. of exactly, and, and it was fascinating. And you know, so we chronicle the course of you know preparations, and you know, over the the eight episodes this season, and you know, finally ending up with the final with episode eight where the wedding takes place, and um, you know, Mariano, Christina's dad, said, you know, this is an amazing thing that. Um, my daughter, who has Down syndrome, is getting married, but I hope one day it's not amazing. Yeah. I hope one day there's a day when, you know, someone with a with 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 Down syndrome getting married isn't special. Yeah, John Murray is the creator and producer of Born This Way, the Emmy Award-winning series on A and E, with its premiere eight seven Central Mountain. I'm glad we're still saying seven Central Mountain. I know, right? It's like a throwback. That's on the 15th of August, A and E. Thanks a lot. Sure. And now the spiel. In election results from Vermont last night, one result was both not an upset and yet unprecedented. And history was made last night as Democratic candidate for Vermont governor Christine Hallquist became the first transgender nominee of a major political party. She defeated three others to clinch the victory. The former utility executive will be up against GOP incumbent Governor Phil Scott in the 2018 midterms. Christine Hallquist became the first openly transgender candidate to win a major party's nominee for governor. Now, I was thinking about that phrase, openly transgender. I get why one would say first openly gay governor or senator from a certain state or 
openly gay statewide official, openly gay. I mean, in New Jersey, Jim McGreevy started out as a, I think even to himself, non-gay identifying politician, then had an affair with a man and then did a press conference and said, I am a gay American. Barney Frank served in Congress while in the closet and then was somewhat forced out of the closet, but then he served proudly and openly as one of the most powerful members of the House of Representatives. And of course, in this country's 240-year history, which actually goes beyond 240 years if you start counting governors appointed by the crown. Of course, lots of them had to have been closeted or secretive or not allowed to express their sexual preference or not openly gay, but but some form of gay. But what about openly transgender? Is it possible beyond the idea of, you know, anything's possible, but is it is it plausible that there was a governor who lived as a different gender than the one he was assigned at birth. Hmm. Or maybe this acknowledges the ambiguity of gender, the non-binary nature of gender, uh, intersex, ambiguous genitalia, that sort of thing. Maybe saying first openly gay uh, allows for the possibility of that. Actually, no. Well, I mean, yes, but here's why I say no. That I think it's a lot simpler than saying, oh, maybe it's just acknowledging a gay area. I started doing a little research into this. And as recently as the 90s, this exact thing happened. Althea Gibson served one term in the Massachusetts House of Representatives. And then media stories revealed that Massachusetts had granted her a new name and an official gender change in the 1970s. And she was effectively ruined in politics. The reporter who broke the story was a future Mitt Romney aide, in fact. And Joanne Conti was a member of the city council of Arvada, Colorado. Also in the 90s, she had transitioned from male to female years before being elected. But when the fact of her past was revealed, she lost re-election. So these two women's stories occurred in the early 90s, which was right about the time that gender reassignment surgery was becoming more common. But before the time, you could be an out trans person and expect to be popularly elected. That time where you can be out and trans and elected, that's like yesterday in Vermont, a year ago in Virginia. Basically, a baby who was born before that was accepted uh, probably won't be speaking in full sentences yet. So this all says to me that the phrase, first openly trans candidate, is not just a necessary nicety nor a nod to convention. It's, I don't know if it's likely, but it's in the realm of the plausible that we have had a trans governor before. The question is, will we have one now in 2018? I'd also call it in the realm of the plausible, but unlikely. And it's not because of how Christine Hallquist identifies. It's because of who she opposes. He is Phil Scott. He is the incumbent. He is the Republican in Vermont, which despite the Ben and Jerry and Bernie reputation, isn't really an oxymoron. Republicans have often thrived in Vermont from 1856 to 18. 63, Vermont only had Republican governors. Yes, yes, I mentioned, of course, all the Proctors, Mortimer Proctor, his governor father, Fletcher Proctor, Fletcher's governor nephew, Redfield Proctor. Now, Redfield Proctor's dad was not the governor of Vermont, but Redfield Proctor's dad was a senator from Vermont. So all those Proctors, and they were all Republicans. And then after 63, I don't think this happened anywhere else in America. Vermont has alternated Republican-Democrat or Republican-Democrat in the governor's office for 55 years. So now Phil Scott's the incumbent. And you can argue, wait, he's a Republican, so it's time for a Democrat, right? Well, maybe not. In Vermont, the governor's term is only two years. 
And Scott's really pretty popular. He was at 65% popularity. It dipped a little bit, but it dipped among conservatives because Scott favored some modest gun control. And now he's facing a general election, having both tacked to the middle on a big issue and beaten back a conservative challenger. Also note the Cook Political Report rates the uh, governor's seat in Vermont as strong Republican. But you know, the actual election results could provide some hope for Hallquist. Hallquist defeated, here, here was her slate of challengers, environmental activist James Ellers, dance festival organizer Brenda Siegel, and a 14-year-old student named Ethan Sonborn. You could run for governor without being able to vote for yourself. I mean, I know, it's kind of ridiculous, a dance festival organizer. I'm sorry. Whenever conservatives made fun of Obama as a community organizer, I thought that was unfair, but dance festival organizer? Okay, I'm a Philistine, I admit it. But you know what? Holquist got 27,459 votes. And in the Republican primary, Phil Scott got 24,115 votes. You could vote in either primary if you were a Vermonter. So what this means is yesterday, people went to the polls, could vote for whoever they wanted, and Christine Holquist did get the most votes. Tells me there's some interest in her. Polling shows a third of Vermonters identify as conservative, a third as moderate, and a third as liberal. It ranks second in terms of self-defined liberal voters. Massachusetts is first. So I guess the question in this election will be, what about the moderates? Do they really lean conservative? Might they be biased against Hallquist? Might they just not like her message? Might they shun her as a person or her proposals as ideas? And all this will play into Christine Hallquist's chances to be the first transgender, sorry, I should say, the first openly transgender governor. And that's it for today's show. Pierre Bienname and Daniel Schrader's favorite season of The Real World was Real World Chattanooga, where they played endless pranks on those snobs from Road Rules Murfreesboro. Steve Lichtai is executive producer of Slate Podcasts. He's about to greenlight Bjorn This Way, about Swedish tennis players who just can't help it. The gist, we're piloting a rival Bjorn This Way. This Bjorn This Way is about a community of Bjornigans who are adults who insist on being transported strapped to the chests of other larger adults, ideally Swedish tennis players. Yumpru Peru, and thanks for listening.